0: What's up, Dialed fam? Welcome to episode 157 of the Dialed Health podcast. My name is Derek Teal. I'm the owner and head coach here at dialedhealth.com, which is strength training for cyclists. On this episode, I sit down with coach Josh Rasmussen to answer all of your questions about strength training for cyclists. We answer whether or not you should do squats on a physio ball, how often you should train your core, is it counterproductive to do strength days on ride days, how much should you strength train during the race season versus off season, how to improve your tricep and low back pain on long gravel rides we talk about how to grow your calves and much much more And I was excited to discuss this with Coach Josh because he's a full-time in-person trainer at Equinox down in Huntington Beach, California. And we met about five years ago back in an enduro race where I found out he was a trainer and going on this path of strength training for cyclists. And since then, we have co-created some programs that you see on dialedhealth.com, like the Total Body Corrective Exercise Program, and he even helped me edit the latest summer maintenance program. So with that said, I really trust Josh as a coach who understands strength training for cyclists. He never pretends to know something he doesn't, and he has a ton of experience on the bike and now as a coach full-time. After this conversation, we dive into my Truckee Tahoe Gravel Race Recap, where I break down everything I did to prepare for this race and ultimately have one of my best rides of the year. I'm going to tell you how I did my course recon, what my plan was for the given ride profile, and actually what played out throughout the day and some of the adjustments I had to make along the way because it did not all go according to plan. However, I was very happy with how intentional my performance was and really how I executed it. But as you'll learn, something are a little out of your control but it's just that experience of working through it which will make you a better and better racer over time so i hope you find it interesting and i hope that you learn from my experience there and if you do please leave me a five star rating and review on whatever podcast platform you are listening on these reviews are super important for showing the popularity of a podcast so if you could do that it would be a huge help i really do appreciate it you could also screenshot that you're listening to the podcast post it to your social media and tag myself or josh so that we have the opportunity to repost it so thanks for all the support and without further ado let's dive into the episode all right josh first question squats
1: on a physio ball good or bad well i'm gonna say bad like we'll just say like you probably won't ever see me program that in a program for a client (laughs) why (laughs) there's like there's simply not much need for it i think like if you think about like what's, what's the point of squatting on a physio ball, I think if you're really trying to test your, the stability of your squat or like how good your balance is, I mean, that's a pretty extreme way. If, if, that, if that's like simply your goal, like you want to do it for fun, like go for it. But I think the risk to reward and more the practical application and exercise like that could have, like, I don't see much carryover. Like if you're trying to, we'll just say you're using it to like build stability in your squat pattern there's better ways to do that by training like your core or like a hip thrust or like working more on like hip and ankle stability and strength. Yeah, I, I just feel like the physio ball is a little extreme. Like you could squat on a BOSU ball, but even that's like I, I don't have clients do that a whole lot. Um, I feel like that starts to get a little bit pushing it into like the ridiculous uh functional strength movements. But that that's just my take. I not there's anything wrong with it, but I just think there are better. better choices out there. I totally agree. The risk and reward is
0: not worth it. In fact, one of the only times I've ever hurt my back in the gym was from doing a squat on a physio ball. And if you're not familiar with what a physio ball is, it's a stability ball. It's a yoga ball, some people call it. Um, I call them Swiss balls. But they're the big balls that you can do a lot of core work with. And I remember outside at Equinox in Santa Monica, I'm out on the grass or the turf. And I go to stand up on the ball and do a squat. Now, I get off balance. And when I go to push the ball out because I'm leaning backwards, my foot, it was like the ball was too squishy. And I couldn't get my foot off of it. Like when I lifted it up, it was still kind of connected to the ball. And long story short, I fell flat on my back. And, dude, I could not pick up like a 45 pound plate without pain for another week after that, which is the worst thing to ever happen as a trainer working the floor because you're just cleaning the gym constantly. (laughs) So I remember for the entire next week, just pretending I wasn't in pain anytime I picked up over, you know, something over 20 pounds. So yeah, squats on physio ball, it's just not worth it. Pick a different exercise or go single leg or uh, really ask yourself what you're trying to get out of it. And you could probably do something else that's a lot, a lot safer. Next question. How often should I practice core workouts during the week when not racing on the weekend? I,
1: I'd say a minimum twice a week. It, and this, I feel like we can kind of transition into one of the other questions we had off of this, but I would implement some sort of, some sort of like core training, like every day, but I'd say at a minimum, try to train your core twice a week. Um, there's really like the four primary movement patterns you're anti-rotation, anti-extension, anti-flexion, anti-lateral flexion. Training like two of those one day and two of those the other day. So do like a side plank and a dead bug one day, and then do like a pal-off press and a regular plank the other day. I don't know. I, I do some sort of like core work or mobility almost every day. Um, but I'd say as far as like structure, I, at least twice a week, but probably better three to four times a week.
0: I would imagine that the core work you do every day would start to get to the point of just pure activation where maybe you're doing mobility work and you do a little bit of breath work that includes a lot of core tightening, something to activate your core, but not necessarily any type of progressive overload for every day. It would really just be kind of like waking it up and then making sure that at least twice a week you're actually challenging your core to the point where you can make real strength gains.
1: Is that how it would really be? Exactly, exactly. I think every day, it would be some sort of activation. Um, The diaphragmatic breathing, I think is a huge one, um, just because the muscles of your core are a little bit more like respiratory in nature, like the deeper muscles of your core. And then I typically just mix core work in with the two or three strength training sessions a week that I do and that most of you guys would be doing if you're on a dialed health program. I think it's one of the more effective ways to do it.
0: Yeah. And I think anyone listening should know that A core exercise doesn't mean that it's an isolated ab exercise. I think oftentimes the best core exercises work muscles from your hips all the way to your shoulder and everything in between, uh, front and back, uh, or pretty much 360 around your torso. And this actually, this person wrote in next, is it necessary to change the core exercises on each workout, which I think basically answers that question. Um, And so you said, what were the four different types of core exercises? Can you say it?
1: what the type of exercise is and then the movement right after it. Yeah. So you would have, we start with like anti extension, which would be something like a dead bug or like a hip thrust, something of that nature. So then moving into anti flexion, which would be something like a plank or like an ab wheel, like a barbell rollout, something of that nature. Um, then There's anti rotation. So that would be something like a stability chop or like a cable stability lift or a pal off press. And then lastly, there's anti lateral flexion, which would be like a side plank or a even something like a single arm carry where you're having to resist that side bend. And then you could also like flex, extend, rotate and bend with all those as well. So
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that explains it uh, definitely in depth. And obviously, these are all, I mean, this this is a shameless plug because we incorporate these into all the Dialed Health programs. And if you want real examples of how to integrate them, I mean, that's it right there. And sometimes it comes with other movements like a squat where you are basically working on uh, it'd be anti lateral flexion where you have a single arm kettlebell and you're doing a squat and you're fighting your body from crunching over to one side, just maintaining the vertical torso works your core, works your torso while you're doing a leg workout essentially. And it's kind of like a, a, a double whammy. So there's a lot of core workouts and a lot of core stress that's hidden in throughout a lot through the programs, um, on dialedhealth.com. Next question. Is it counterproductive to strength train on ride days? Or does it depend on the ride intensity?
1: Um, I don't think it's counterproductive. I would probably spread them out as much as possible. So depending on what your schedule is looking like that day, I would maybe do your strength training early in the morning first thing. And then if, say, like you're doing a group ride in the evening, then go hit that group ride in the evening. Um, And I think intensity is going to vary depending on each. So like if you know that, group ride is going to be fast paced and you want to throw down, maybe just do a little bit of uh, lower intensity strength workout that morning and vice versa. If you know you're hitting a ride in the morning, like you're doing intervals or just like a longer ride first thing in the morning, try to push that strength workout out as far as you can. Yeah. That's, that's, that would be my take on that.
0: Yeah. I, t- I totally agree. You have to, you can totally do double days and the intensity at which you do them is totally dependent on your ability to recover. So if you're able to do a really hard strength training session in the morning, put your legs up for three hours, take a nap in the afternoon, and fully recover, but by well, you know, fully within reason. Recover as much as possible by the time you go to the afternoon group ride. This is something you've done week in, week out for months, maybe years. Chances are it's going to be just fine for you. And there's a lot of people that do that, and you're probably thinking it's the lifestyle of a professional athlete, which it pretty much is. And I think Josh nails it when he said, or I shouldn't speak about you in third person, but (laughs) I think you nail it when you say you should spread out the intensity as much as possible throughout the week. And I think that what people get hung up on is this idea of like, okay, my rest days should be rest and my hard days should be hard, you know? And there is truth to that, but there's also the reality that a lot of people can't do two hard sessions from a recovery standpoint or even a scheduling standpoint in the same day. Sometimes it works well. And sometimes if you know you have an easy day following a day like that, it's much more doable. But I would just say, let your schedule and what's realistic to do consistently based off your schedule dictate how you stack up your sessions uh, for a double day. and the order at which you do them from a recovery or from a performance standpoint, there's evidence that backs up both. You can have people that argue both. I'll tell you that It makes the most sense to put the focus of what you want the outcome from more uh, and put the energy towards that sometimes first, because then the other thing can get the leftovers. So like for a lot of riders, doing your ride first, you can go, let's just say hammer your group ride, and then you do as much as you can in the strength training session. That makes sense. But then what if your group ride is in the afternoon and you don't have a choice? Well. Then maybe you have a less intense strength session, but you come into the ride super activated and you feel great because all morning you were stretching and you're literally doing activation exercises, a little bit of strength. And I guarantee you, if you did that, you'll start your ride feeling better. Like it's going to feel like you need less of a less time to get into the intensity on your ride. Even if there's a little fatigue, you're probably going to feel really good. So it could go both ways. And I think ultimately it comes down to preference of schedule what's realistic with your schedule and then trying it and seeing what you can recover from because we could go back and forth arguing all day which is better but i think very people very few people even have the luxury to base it off of just pure science and then again if you did there's there's science that backs up both
1: yeah and i'd say Um, last thing on that just like To speak from experience, like I've had days where I've thrown down like heavy strength training session in the morning, and then it was within like maybe an hour and a half turnaround, like get a quick meal in me, and then jump right on the bike. And I, I I think it was like a forty mile ride with some friends, and they were kind of like getting after it, and had like a couple steep hill climbs, and I could handle it like in the ride, like I was able to push through no problem. It definitely felt a little more cracked at the end, and I was it, it took a lot longer like in the days following to recover. So I think just another example of like why it's important to spread out your intensity, like by all means, you can push through and do it, but, um, like, like stack your, your days up like that, but it's, it's probably going to be detrimental in the long run. Next question, how to improve tricep and lower back fatigue with long gravel rides. Okay. So my initial thought here, um, is simply, being on a strength training program for a longer period of time, like I, I would want to maybe look at what you, this person has done in terms of strength training up to this point and see what their current level of core strength and like upper body strength is. Um, because I think that directly that, that has a direct effect on your ability to sit in the saddle in maybe a less than ideal position or have like certain muscles like your triceps working more, than they typically would. Yeah. I I think just strength training them and being able to handle like like that will increase your capacity over time to handle them and, and going through a progressive program like endurance and then hypertrophy, like trying to build some of the muscle in your triceps and then working on like maybe top end strength of your triceps doing like, like diamond pushups or like heavy dips or tricep extensions, like get them stronger. And I think over time, with just continued repetition, you kind of build up a tolerance to it. Yeah, I think
0: you can at least start to isolate it after that. It's very hard if you're not like, okay, if you're not strength training consistently with a well-rounded program that has, you know, horizontal pushing and pulling, vertical pushing and pulling uh, with the core movements, with hip dominant, with knee dominant movements, if you don't have this balanced program, then there's it's a it's very likely these things can improve by just implementing a balanced program consistently and this is like when people have a lot of aches and pains and little niggles they need to work out a lot of it but if that person doesn't foam roll they don't stretch it's pretty easy to to get them out of pain because they can almost start doing anything and make some progress so it's like having this general approach is a good idea because you're like oh all i needed to do was you know some push-ups each week and that that little bit has drastically reduced the fatigue in my triceps or uh, all i need to do is i just need to learn how to hip hinge properly and then i needed to load it at least one day a week so this could be like some type of deadlift variation that they needed to do but if let's just say they are already doing that they have a very well-rounded strength program and they're still noticing that as a weak area what i would say is for one are you actually pushing the intensity on your hip hinge movements Do you have proper time under tension like do you get to a point where you actually feel real fatigue during a set and also do we need to actually just improve your mobility like things like lower back a lot of times are from tight muscles and not necessarily uh, tight muscles that are unactivated that are not necessarily weak like your low back may not necessarily be weak. Like if you're somebody that's doing a lot of deadlifts and you can handle the time under tension and the intensity, you have a great hip hinge, and you're still feeling low back pain on the bike. I think it's pretty clear that we need to activate your core, maybe stretch your hips, maybe stretch your glutes, maybe maybe your glute activation on the bike is lacking, and we need to make sure that uh, we're doing some more activation pre ride so that you can take advantage of that. So. Once you have a general approach, then you can narrow it down. As for the triceps, I agree. Doing like a a diamond push-up, a narrow grip push-up, you could do something as isolated as like an overhead tricep extension or tricep push-downs or kickbacks or (laughs) whatever elbow extension you want to insert. You could do that and just see if purely strength is what your triceps needed. I think any time that you can do a movement uh, that isn't so isolated, it could be beneficial. Uh, like instead of just doing a tricep kickback do to, to do a narrow grip pushup, you're also going to work your shoulders and your chest. And that combination is also what you're going to be using on the bike. So it's like, can we just increase the volume there and see if that makes the difference? I mean, that's what I would do if I was you, uh, if I was training you one-on-one, I'd basically say, Hey, okay, what's your approach now? Do we have it generally covered from that general standpoint? Did we notice improvement? Okay. We need to go in on it more let's keep this general thing and let's let's make these like specific tweaks to you and go from there
1: yeah i would agree and and i think you nailed something there in terms mm-hmm. of like focusing on like proper positioning and and really like core strength i i think a lot of people just with the positioning of the bike um learning how to get into your core muscles and letting the muscles of your trunk do the work being able to like to pack your shoulders like when you're on the bike kind of pulling them down and back uh, and packing them into that proper position i think that naturally is going to put more of the load on your shoulders and your core like the bigger muscles that are meant to handle that load because otherwise you collapse down and most of the weight is now being bared by your triceps. So it's kind of like the idea we talked about the saying, um, like one weak link affects the entire chain. So that weak link maybe potentially being your lack of core strength or, um, uh, inability to like, I guess get your core engaged and properly turn on in turn directly as an effect down the chain on your triceps and your triceps are what bear that load most. Like I see that all the time in the gym. And I'm sure you have too, Derek, like in training people who, they do a plank or a side plank and their arms are the first thing they give out. Um, really, I think it's just Mm -hmm. teaching proper positioning of packing those shoulders, getting your upper body in the right position and engaging your core. It's true when you're in a position
0: like a riding position on the bike, your torso can take some load off of your arms like if you are compensating for such a weak torso that your arms are bearing more weight and you can't hold yourself up a little bit with like the erectors in your back or just with your core strength in general you're gonna be adding more weight on your arms and so like you said it is crazy how one link weak link affects the whole system and i think that kind of opens up a can of worms which we don't have to dive into but (laughs) it is really good in mind just think when you're having these problems Start with a general approach. Once you implement that consistently, narrow it down from there. Hey, Dowd fam, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I have an incredible testimonial that I received this week that I really wanted to share with you guys because I think it's going to resonate. I thought it was very inspiring. I'll read it to you, and we will dive back into the episode. Now, this was emailed to me from Patrick Gilgar. He is a Dowd fam member who, who I've recently been helping schedule his workouts all around his rides during the week. He says, Hey, Derek, I'm loving the program. I struggle with a mild bit of depression. I put myself on self-prescribed challenge to journal and exercise for 30 days straight. The Dialed Health program has been part of that and it's helped me so much. Physically, I feel like I'm making progress, but mentally it's put me on a much better place. I'm way more patient with my wife and three kids. I'm looking forward to keeping the momentum going. I've been doing the beginner body weight program and will be moving on to the cross-country program in the next two weeks. And then he goes on to ask a question about Scheduling, like I mentioned, but I had to ask him, I said, dude, can I please read that testimonial? Because it's incredible. You know, I always focus on the physical benefits that you gain from implementing strength training, but truthfully, the mental side of it is huge. In fact, I've worked with people in the past that. Literally said they are at a point where they almost don't care about the physical because it helps them mentally so much. And typically it has to do with performing at work or being a little bit more patient with their family or just being more loving and more caring and someone who is able to listen to other people a little bit more, like get out of their own head. And so that's really something that happens with strength training uh, along with cycling. And I think what you'll notice, even if you get that benefit from riding, the different stimulus you get from strength training keeps that, I guess, that dopamine hit a little bit more fresh. It keeps those endorphins pumping in a different way that uh, you'll notice in your everyday life. So if you didn't have enough of a reason to strength train from a physical standpoint, I highly recommend doing it for your mental. Now, with that said, let's dive back into the episode. Next question. How should my strength training differ between on and off season?
1: Yeah, this is a good question. Um, I, I like this. So I think really it's the, the primary lens that like, I think to look at it through would be off season, you are putting more of the focus in the gym, trying to build your body up, become strong, become mobile, durable, powerful to then as it gets closer to the season, starting to transition to focus more to your on the bike work and then your strength training becomes then supplemental to the work you're doing on the bike and you are then trying to just pull back on strength training volume to maintain what you've built in the off season which is only going to allow you to stay strong stay durable um and reduce your risk of injury, um, or over, or, or over like throughout your race season. So, um, just, just simply just a shift in focus, like off season, you're focusing on building your body up a little less focus on your, on the bike training. And then as you start to get closer to the season, you're kind of flipping it on the bike training becomes more the priority and your strength work becomes supplemental. You're just trying to maintain.
0: Dude, I couldn't have said that better. I mean, essentially you do, more strength training in the off season at a higher intensity than you would in the season. And it becomes more of a part of your training to really focus on or allow to become the focus opposed to the in season when your riding really should be the focus of your training. Like when it, be, it you know, for the person, even with doing a double day or you have two hard days in a row, one's on the bike, one's off the bike. It's like the intensity should always be, come out of the strength training session while you're in season so you can get the work done on the bike that you need and in the off season in theory it really just wouldn't matter as much you know you're likely doing lower intensity rides you're likely getting a lot of the intensity in the gym opposed to doing some type of intervals on the bike and that's really how it should kind of ebb and flow throughout the season and i think what's cool about allowing yourself to do that is not only is it really good for your body to to rest and recover from different stimuluses but it's also just fun mentally it's nice to switch up the focus it's good to see the numbers on your squat come up it's good to see your numbers on a pull up or a push up or a bench press or whatever increase and especially when you don't need to maybe go perform on the bike the same way uh, the next day it's really rewarding because you can kind of just enjoy the process and you're not sweating about being a little fatigued on the next ride because maybe it's just a zone two ride. Maybe you're just doing a long coffee ride. Maybe you're doing the Festive 500 and you know, like, like at the end of the year and you're just trying to get big miles in and you're not just doing some sprint race rides or actually going to like your local, uh, race or, or even national champs or world champs. So, so yeah, more in the off season, allow yourself to increase the intensity, And then as your structure starts to come together, as you get into spring, you can start to peel back on the volume a little bit. Um, A lot of people, if you're going to be riding more than 10 hours a week, I would definitely cut back to two strength training sessions a week um, and not do any more than that. And then you can just put all of the focus of intensity on your actual riding itself. Um, But I will say this all kind of comes down to the riding discipline that you do and how often you ride And, and honestly, at what level you ride at. You know, if you race downhill, you can be in the gym three days a week year round. If you are racing in the Tour de France, your strength workouts in the middle of summer should be mostly activation work and enough to maintain, but not necessarily build. And so, and it's going to be, we're talking two 45 minute sessions per week with like a lot of mobility in in between. Uh, The summer maintenance program is a great example of that. And those would be like the two extremes, you know, so it does come down to the discipline. Essentially, the less you pedal, like pedal specifically, the more strength training you can do, the more you pedal, the less strength training you should do. But there's that line of two days a week where you go below that you're, you're definitely not going to maintain and you're probably not going, you're you're definitely not going to make progress and you're probably not going to maintain is what I was trying to say.
1: Yeah, took that one and ran with it. That was nice. <laughs> Thanks, dude. I've been
0: I've been actually thinking about this a lot because I want to include a one year program into the That'd schedule.
1: Cool. That would be really cool. Um,
0: s- strength for knee pain. Thanks from Spain. <laughs> Shout out to you, Natal Farito. By the way, I'm sorry I'm not reading everyone's handles. Uh, we're just trying to get through the questions as fast as possible. But I really appreciate everybody who wrote in on Instagram. Thank you so much for the questions. Um,
1: so let's talk about it, Josh strength for knee pain. Yeah, this is another good one. Um, I feel like there's a variety of ways you can go with this. Um, I think first off addressing whether or not it's an actual like mobility restriction at the knee and and a good way to do this really is to just, if you were to drop onto both knees, you're in a tall kneeling position and see if you can sit your butt. Onto your heels, the tops of your feet are flat on the ground. And if you can't do that comfortably, then very likely it is some sort of soft tissue restriction and you could benefit from foam rolling and stretching your quads specifically. Um, and I, I'd like to get specific to really spend some time on it, like start just above the knee. Um, and I mean, probably is going to feel like it's somewhere around a six, seven, maybe an eight out of 10, and then just breathe relax and just work your way up. Um, Go until it relaxes down to like maybe a two or a three out of 10 in terms of pain, work your way up your quads and then go into something like a couch stretch or like a half kneeling hip flexor stretch. Something like that could go a very long ways, like adding in simple mobility. Um, If it's more of a chronic knee issue. And I think something that cyclists deal with quite a bit, uh, especially if you don't strength train as much is, Um, you simply would benefit from implementing specific strength training, um, some sort of mechanical tension, like cycling is very repetitive in nature. And that is going to break down your tendons over time. Like you want to do something to strengthen them. And there's a lot of research coming out Mm -hmm. around the benefits of loading your tendons to strengthen them, um, Assuming that that is like like patellar tendon tendonopathy, excuse me, is uh, more of like a chronic knee pain. Um, assuming that that is what you're dealing with, um, I actually have a guy who I'm working with this right now. He's a former Division One college football player, and uh, is just dealing with some lingering knee pain. And one thing I've had him doing is um, a Spanish squat. Start with isometrics. Do so. So a Spanish squat, you can. Um, Basically, you get like a big, like a thicker resistance band um, and you wrap it around something stable and then you step into it at about knee height. Have that band just behind the back of your knees, maybe just below your knees and stay tall with your posture, like upright torso and just sit. Very similar to doing a wall sit, but instead of the support of a wall, you get the support of that band like it's almost wanting to pull you forward. Um and I'm sure like we could we could maybe do a demo of this somehow. Um or you can always look this up, but four sets, a uh, 2 to 4 sets of like 45 seconds, you're going to get an incredible quad burn and it should just allow some relief to that patellar tendon. Do that a couple times a week, maybe 2 to 3 times a week for a couple weeks. Um and I think you'll really start to notice a difference. Um, and I'm gonna plug the Total Body Corrective Exercise program as well, because we include a split squat isometric um, in that program that's kind of targeted at helping knee pain. Um, and then from there, starting to conservatively load your tendons, like eccentric loading specifically. So a slower down, faster up tempo. Um, it's been shown in, in a lot of research that, uh, heavy, the concept of heavy, slow resistance, um, through like a squat or a split squat can have huge benefits to strengthening your knees. So I know that was a bit of a rant there, but strengthening the muscles around your knees begin with isometrics. That Spanish squat variation is fantastic. Go check the total body corrective exercise program. We have the split squat variations on there. Um, it's hard to really like Pinpoint it without like um, directly assessing what the issue is because it could be something at your hips, it could be something at your ankles as well that's causing that knee pain. But I'd say typically with cyclists, it's because the tendons are um, just getting your patellar tendon, especially, is just getting a little bit worn out, um, and muscles of your quads are just being a little bit overused, and they need proper strengthening and soft tissue work. Yeah. Like-
0: dude that was amazing um you know my first thing i recommend is always like like with a foam roller because it's just it's it's free it's very it's about as low risk as you can get regarding exercise and it's something that people need to do regardless it's like if you have some pain in your knee and you never foam roll or stretch your quads you got to just try that first that's like the lowest hanging fruit you can you can grab pretty much and then you think oh wow if I did this and then maybe after it, I loaded my, my knees a little bit with a isometric split squat or the Spanish squat that you're talking about. Or, or frankly, you know, you could probably do a farmer's carry and gain some benefits of tendon strengthening by walking around with heavy weight, um, or doing like some eccentric squats. And like, it, but again, this is like the zero to one approach. It's like going from nothing and doing something like that is probably going to make a difference. So I think your example of testing to whether or not testing to find out if it's soft tissue by sitting back on your heels is, is money, dude. I love that. So you guys go and try that. And I'll tell you from experience, anytime I have an IT band flare up, I talk about this all the time. I had this ACL surgery. We used a hamstring. It was a bad idea. I get IT band flare ups. When that happens, I can't sit on my heels. There is like actual pain in my knee like crazy, but it's again, it's all soft tissue. I can manipulate it within five minutes, be comfortable. Um, So it's very interesting how that works for me. Um, I also have to point out, I was cringing when you were explaining this uh, the Spanish squat because I saw someone do a variation of this and they did it wrong and they loaded it and they tore their ACL. Have you seen that video of the guy leaning back against that. And, and Kelly Starrett is the one who's uh who's analyzing it. Have you seen that?
1: I haven't seen the I haven't seen the one where Kelly Starrett is analyzing it. Um uh Kelly Starrett for the record. But he, the guy's is, got the plate. Yeah, yeah, he, he's got the plate. Like he Yeah, I yeah, he's like sits back. I, I wanted to say it was, I thought he was doing like um maybe it's a different one I'm thinking of, but I, I think you and I are thinking of the same one, but yes, like he's like just loading it way more than he needs to. And like falls back and he kind of reaches that point of no return. Like, I think he's like at, or like just below 90 degrees, which is probably a little bit too low. Like you want to probably be like above 90 degrees, maybe something like, yeah, but his thing was, he was leaning back and his feet were
0: anchored and he had, like a piece of metal behind his leg. It wasn't like a band that he was squatting and staying upright. He was like laying back with the plate and then your ACL, which basically in your knee allows your knee not to move forward or your lower. It stops your leg from moving forward and back essentially is like the tendons. Yeah, I know you're like cringing as I talk about it, but because he's leaning so far back to the point of no return, that thing on, I think it's like his left side just snaps
1: and it's like, Oh dude, (laughs) I
0: hate seeing that
1: stuff. (laughs) I'm sorry to even bring it up, but uh, you're talking about, I I'd forgotten about it. And then you brought that up. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's rough. This is it. This is a random (laughs) side note, but
0: I just got to tell people, be careful in the gym. You know, I, I try crazy stuff. I like doing fun stuff. It's cool to experiment, but remember that dude, you can get hurt. You don't want to drop a heavy weight on yourself. You don't want to blow out of ACL, doing something stupid. Like it's, it's good to be cautious in the gym. And it's easy to forget that when you see guys doing these insane things on Instagram. So, uh, just throwing that out there to people, dude, I I don't think the risks of the gym get talked about like enough. And I know that for my members and anyone that watches my content, I'd want them to know that I take it very, very seriously. Uh, even with myself, like I'm, I'm overly cautious in my own workouts. I don't go to failure on on barbell movements if I don't have someone spotting me like there's a lot of little things like you see uh, that happen to people over the years or that even happen to you where you're like ooh uh I'm not going to put myself in that position <laughs>
1: <laughs> the the gym fails i think it's called the gym fails page on instagram is a, oh, a great reference point things bro, I had to stop following it
0: <laughs> i know i After you see a couple like busted joints and I had to stop watching it. It was just making me cringe too much. Next question. High cadence with low resistance or low cadence with high resistance for best results. I'm thinking this is an on the bike training question about quote unquote strength training on the bike. I feel like the question is catered towards should you do like high cadence with low resistance or low cadence with high resistance period. Like the real answer is do both. Um, I definitely can't talk about per the perfect cadence on a bike, like a real, you know, like Frank from fast catwood or, uh, Jonathan Lee from trainer road would, but I can definitely say that it seems like a higher cadence is a little bit more efficient from everything that I've heard. Uh, and the, even the way I ride. And I, I think that being up toward, you know, the high eighties, low nineties is a really great place to be. Um, Typically, when the intensity comes down, I like to spin my cadence a little bit lower, Uh, but the variety is the most important. And doing high cadence, or excuse me, high resistance, low cadence intervals, I think is a really good idea because you'll you won't have to shift as much. It's almost like you're more efficient. You're not constantly just stuck in this like high spin. Mode, And I've been guilty of that in the past, like even now on my road rides, especially if I'm just over rolling terrain, I try and shift less just to mix in that work a little bit. But a lot of people will do low cadence, high resistance work on the bike as their quote unquote strength training. And that's completely wrong. It's like, (laughs) for one, you're in a position on the bike that you're always in. We got to get out of that position for a little bit and we got to strengthen other parts of your body that you simply can't strengthen on the bike. And also a low cadence drill is still like 50 RPMs in a minute. Tell me what exercise you do in the gym that you're going to do 50 reps in a minute. If you do, I promise you, it's not strength training, it's cardio. <laughs> and so, uh, or it's a, some form of aerobic training. So keep that in mind. It's like, what is going to go first, your legs or your heart rate. And even if it is mm. your, even if it is your, your legs, Can you get a better use out of your time by loading up tissues like the the posterior chain, glutes, hamstrings, and all that, that you can't get on the bike? So remember, it's like more riding is not always the answer. You can't accomplish stuff on the bike that you can't accomplish in the gym and vice versa. I would never tell people that the most important thing to do to be a good bike rider is strength train. No, the most important thing is to go ride your bike. (laughs) But the optimal thing to do, the healthiest long-term thing to do, the best thing to do mentally and physically is mix the two, and mm-hmm. and, and that's all that's that's the truth behind that. <laughs> that that's all I got to say about that. Say, mic drop. That was that. I, I even learned something there. <laughs> well, I know you got this. Uh, I got you got this next one. Uh, two times a week doing dumbbell workout for legs enough? How about core? It's funny how people write some of these questions. Yeah, Did that makes sense to you. And we also. How about this? We got another question too are hex deadlifts twice per week enough lower body strength training for a cyclist? Oh, the next one too, is I ride three times a week. When do I train my legs? I often skip leg days due to fatigue. We could probably tackle all these at once.
1: Yeah. There's one of that, like the one or two rep max one too, that I, I like no one to like address at some point. Okay. So all three of those, there was hex bar deadlift twice a week. Um, there's, is that, let's start with that one. Let's get specific okay. with
0: that is a hex bar deadlift twice per week low is that enough for low body strength lower body strength for a cyclist um well i give me i know i know you you have an answer clear as day for this just say it bro
1: yeah i'd say i'd hope you're doing more than just a hex bar deadlift um twice a week um Yep. So hex bar deadlift is going to be primarily what we'd call like a hip dominant movement or like a hip hinging pattern. It does load your quads a little bit more. So it kind of, if you want to say it's more well-rounded, like probably one of the most well-rounded exercises for your lower body. Um, and even gets obviously like your core and a little bit of upper body involved as well. Um, but I, it's, it's important to have a variety. So I would say, um, hex bar deadlift maybe in one session a week. And then on that other session, instead of doing a hex bar deadlift, implement some sort of pure hinge variation, like a Romanian deadlift, like a dumbbell Romanian deadlift, or like a single leg Romanian deadlift, something that is going to challenge your strength and stability through a broader range of motion. Um, That would be my answer. Unless you are just strictly trying to like hammer out like, hex bar deadlifts to get better at them then i I mean maybe i could see that but even still the other lower body exercises that you would do both quad dominant like squat split squat lunge variations and other hip hinge variations that work your hamstrings uh, and your lower body through a broader range of motion are going to increase your lower or your, your hex bar deadlift excuse me so the answer is I'd say hex bar deadlift once a week, choose some other sort of pure hinge variation, um, and add in some sort of knee dominant movement along with that.
0: Yeah. The hex bar deadlifts are one of my favorite movements, period. They're incredible. Hex bar feels comfortable. I think For all the exercises to go heavy on, that one is going to feel the best for most people. And it definitely feels the best for myself as well. Also, the range of motion with your legs is very comparable to what you would do during a pedal stroke, which I really like. It's not like super deep range of motion at the knee. Uh, But again, it it still works a little bit of everything. You're not totally hinged. You're not totally squatted. uh, Your upper body, your grip, all that stuff's getting worked. Now, here's the reality of what's going to happen. If you're someone who just wants me to say, all you got to do is hex bar deadlift, bro. And you start just hex bar deadlifting for your lower body. Let's just say you did that for two months, right? And you're like, dude, I'm getting way stronger. My hex bar deadlift, my sprints feels good. I feel like my descending and standing on the bike feels really good. Well, then if I had you implement a single leg Romanian deadlift, and you did one single leg Romanian deadlift per week, and then hex bar another week, or we just did some Bulgarian split squats instead of the hex bar two days a week, and you built some variety, you added some single leg work, you know what would happen after that following two months? You'd be like, dude, I feel even better. And then here's what would happen. If you took out the hex bar again and did that for two months, you would notice your improvements in the split squat come up through the roof, and you'd probably feel really good. And then when we added back in the hex bar, guess what? You'd feel even better. So it's like <laughs> everyone wants me to say, just do this, just do that. But it, it, it's not that that isn't going to potentially help you or it's not going to be to say that isn't quote-unquote enough, but it's not optimal. Just doing the one thing is not optimal. I, there's no other way to, to slice it for you. I don't know how to serve this thing up in an easier way than really the seven effective movements. Like, think about that for lower, like, I mean, how could that be more simple and actually be effective? I don't, I don't know if it can. And actually this goes into, we'll get back to the dumbbell question, but this does go into another question we got that I have to address right now, because someone says, what are the essential gym exercises every cyclist should do on a weekly basis? This is something Josh and I feel very strongly about, and we have an insane amount of results to prove it. At the bare minimum, Josh, what, what essential gym exercises should cyclists do on a weekly basis? Let's say we have two sessions per week. What movements do you have to do to have a well-rounded program?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know that the seven effective movements, so you have your knee dominant and hip dominant. So knee dominant is more of like a squat focused pattern or like a, like a split squat or a lunge. And then you have your hip dominant movement, your Deadlifts, your your trap bar deadlifts, your glute bridges and hip thrusts that could be considered a hip dominant movement. Um, your upper body uh, vertical pushing and horizontal pushing, your vertical pulling, your horizontal pulling, and then your core. It's it's essentially. And can that's you important. give examples for each one of those? Like what is a what is a horizontal push? Yeah. So. Anything from a push-up to a bench press, a dumbbell bench press, um, an incline dumbbell bench press, or or any kind of incline bench press variation, Um, even something I'd even consider like a landmine press, more of like a horizontal push, Um, horizontal or vertical, depending on how you go into it. But that's like the other side of it is you have vertical pushing. So primarily overhead pressing, shoulder presses. Arnold presses, uh, a barbell, like a strict military press. Um, then you have your upper body pulling. So primarily, it's going to be rowing. Um, you could throw things like face pulls in there as well. Um, and then your upper body um, vertical pulling, pull-up variations, pull-down variations, things of that nature. Um, and then your core movements. We kind of touched on those earlier. There's a wide variety of core movements to, to choose from. Um, and I'd say sprinkle at least one to two of those in each strength training session. And, and on top of that, uh, planes of motion, try to like, if you can move in a different plane of motion, other than the sagittal plane, like we move forward and back. We spend so much time there on the bike, get out of that sagittal plane, move, do, do a lateral lunge, do a curtsy lunge, do a lateral step up, um, add some rotation in, do like some rotational med ball slams or like some sort of cable rotation for your core stuff. That's going to both improve your mobility and your body's ability to move in a variety of directions, because that's, that's real life. That is strength training at it's functional strength training. Yeah. And it, it, the carryover. Yeah. You,
0: you know, that dude. Yeah. Um, you know, the three planes of motion that you mentioned, you have the frontal plane or excuse me, the sagittal plane, which is forward and back. You have the frontal plane, which is lateral movement side to side. And then you have the transverse plane, which is uh, any type of rotation. So if you look at it, you can mix those into the seven effective movements as well. It's like, oh, I want to do a frontal plane exercise, which moves me side to side. And I want it to be hip or excuse me, knee dominant. Well, I can do lateral lunge. That's that's perfect. And this is a way for, and this, this is why having a trainer program for you is worth it because you don't have to think about all these variations. Cause then you think of a variation and you're like, well, where does it go from here? Like if I want a periodized program and I want this to progress over three weeks or (laughs) three weeks, you wish three months, (laughs) if I want this to progress over three months or maybe three years, then how does, how do I actually phase this out? And that's where it does get, you know, it's like, that's where an actual professional comes in. It's like, you know, we know what exercises are out there and available, we're constantly learning. We're constantly uh, talking to other trainers, seeing what they're doing. And, um, you know, even having you on here, Josh, is so cool for me because I don't talk to trainers nearly as much as I, I want to. And I I do miss that environment from time to time, being in the gym, seeing what other people are doing in real time. You get so many ideas and there's so many refreshers over the years. You forget about certain things. So uh, even us being able to collaborate on programs has been very very, very helpful for me. Uh, you edited the summer maintenance program, which was super helpful. And so that is one thing I'm just very grateful for. And I'd recommend you guys is like, you know, let us do our jobs and take you through the exercises. And if anything, use a program as your foundation. You know, you can always sprinkle in some random stuff you want to do on the side. Just like use it as a foundation. It's kind of like writing. You have a base program and then, you know, you can you can. Cater it to how you want. Talk to your coach about it or uh, just have some fun with it, honestly. And before we get into the last question, there is one more thing I want to add to the seven effective movements, which is why they're so awesome, is that that's the model you follow year round. That's what's so cool. You can have a very heavy, very high intensity hip hinge, or you can have a light hip hinge that is fast moving and high reps like a kettlebell swing you know, versus a heavy, heavy deadlift. These are both hip dominant movements. You can train the plane of motion. You can have a well-rounded program and you can wildly change that training stimulus based off of what time of year it is, based off of how much fatigue you're willing to take on from the session and how you want to adapt to those sessions. So that's what's so cool about it is like, people want me to say, just do this one exercise. But the truth is it's do these seven movements, move in these three planes of motion. And as long as you do that year round, there's a huge variety of stuff you can do to cater that to your needs at the time. And that's a sustainable model to actually follow. Uh, so thanks for letting me get on the soapbox and like say a little bit more about that because it is, is just like exciting to have clarity on what the right thing to do is in regarding strength training and you know, if someone has a legitimate argument up against what we're talking about, I would I would genuinely love to hear it, <laughs> please. Same thing. With, I know you would come to me with it, Josh, too. And you can go to Josh with it, too. If you don't think seven effective movements make sense, if you don't think three planes of motion, training that year round, how to cater the intensity, if you don't think that makes sense, just tell me why. And if you could prove it, maybe we could come up with some better training. But I don't know. Um, anything you want to add to that before I move on to this last couple of questions, Josh?
1: Um. No, I, I think you nailed it. And I think one thing I hear a lot from people and and I think this is just being um, at Equinox as well because we this is where like Derek and I have learned this method of training and then even outside of Equinox like a lot of the coaches like strength and conditioning coaches and instructors that are at the forefront of this field um of health and fitness strength training specifically, I, I think would agree. Like this is the model that they teach as well. And if you are trying to pair it with what we do, riding bikes several times a week, like like it, it's a lifestyle and we need something to support it. Like there is no better way. Um, one thing I hear a lot is like, you can't build muscle as effectively. And unless your goal is to be a professional bodybuilder, I think there is no need to be on a crazy bodybuilding program. And it's going to have no benefit to what you do on the bike. There are ways to manipulate volume and intensity within a program that is centered around the seven effective movements to where you can still build muscle. Like I see it with clients week in and week out month in and month out. And, and I'm sure Derek has too over time. Like we have a ton of testimonials to be able to prove this. Um, so there are ways to build muscle, get stronger and become a better overall version of yourself, both on and off the bike without, um, absolutely destroying yourself. And, and I think yeah. seven effective movements prove it.
0: Yeah, it's well said. And honestly, if your primary number one goal is to build as much muscle as possible, I mean, you, you probably, I I'm just going to refer to you to another program. I mean, because That is going to go against your goals on the bike, period. Um, If you want to gain some muscle and you want to get stronger, like that's absolutely what we're doing. But um, if you want to go be on a bodybuilding program, more power to you. I I actually follow some bodybuilding. It's super fun to watch. Uh, And even then, what would you do for your healthiest bodybuilding program? You would still do the seven effective movements as a base, and then you would have all these isolated movements on top of it. Mm -hmm. So you, you would almost start sessions with compound movements and then move to more like accessory work, which was what a lot of people do it. Or you'd start with getting like some crazy high volume pump for like a pre fatigue. And then you'd go into your compound movements and you'd go back into isolated movements. But again, it's like this type of person, um, even though they might enjoy bodybuilding it and following it is probably not coming to us for that. I hope, (laughs) I hope you're not coming. Don't, don't come to me for bodybuilding. I love it too like same with CrossFit don't come to me for it as much as I love it it's just not your solution as a cyclist um and so with that said I got one more question for you and then kind of an announcement because it's goes along with the question but the question is is doing one or two rep maxes a bad idea as a cyclist sometimes I can't help it
1: yeah, um, great question. A lot of good ones here. Um, I'd say no. Uh, max effort lifts. Um, are a, it's, a, it's a demonstration of your body's ability to produce force. And essentially, the stronger you are, the more force you can produce and the more potential for power to produce as well. Um, and I think that's only going to have carryover to... Uh, your training on the bike, whether you are a downhill racer, like having power to handle hard hits and put the bike where you need it to go. And, and to be the most optimal downhill racer, just like a road cyclist needs power as well. You push power on the pedals, like your ability to produce force with your one rep max is your one or two rep max is a good way to, um, to determine that. Um, granted, I will say though, I think it's important to use, like to do so sparingly within the context of a, of a progressive program, excuse me. Um, meaning you have built a solid base of endurance, stability, and you are comfortable with the lifts that you're doing. Um, ideally under the watchful eye of a coach, making sure your form is solid, um, And and you're doing it. I when I do this, I I have no problem letting clients. Like I get get excited when I have people testing their one two rep maxes. Um, And I typically give them a range. Like we'll go in like a four week strength block, and I'll say, hey, go one to five reps. Pick a weight that you feel you can do for at least five reps. If you're feeling good, we'll work up from there. And if not, then we'll just keep. The intensity a little bit lighter and work within that five rep range but i i wouldn't do it for more than four weeks at a time because like if, if you're testing your one rep max every single week week over week month over month it's going to be ridiculously taxing on your body and you're just going to plateau like testing your one rep max or two rep max and then getting it up, 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 and then taking a step back, giving your body a deload week, and then a little bit of a break, going back through an endurance and stability and hypertrophy phase, build back up it up, build back up to it. And then test your one to two rep max again for a couple weeks at a time. Um, I think it's a great thing to do. Um, and I'd say more, more specifically, it'd probably be better to do in the off season, uh, more often than you would in season. Um, specifically if you're racing, um, not to say you can't do it in the off season or or, uh, mid season, excuse me for maintenance, but, um, I, I think it needs to be, uh, programmed in a very timely manner.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think off season is a good time to do it. And it's tough because there is a lot of risk that comes with a true one rep mask, math, math. Oh my gosh. One rep max on a compound movement. So whether that's squat bench, deadlift or overhead press or whatever it might be, you know, there's going to be a lot of risk that comes along with it. So I would tell somebody never go past your technical max. As Mm -hmm. soon as you feel like your form is slipping, that's exactly when you need to cut it off don't fight through poor form because that is going to be just not worth it. Period. (laughs) And so doing it in the off season is a really good idea. I haven't programmed it actually. I, I like, it's one of those things I don't find completely necessary, but it is interesting and it's a fun goal to work towards. And it's cool to see progress that way. But I will tell you, if you're a cyclist who is doing, you know, just two days a week of total body strength training, If you really want to improve a specific lift or a very specific movement, uh, you almost have to add additional volume on that. You know, for instance, like if you really want to get better at pull-ups, you should probably do pull-ups twice a week. So in my programs, I probably wouldn't program pull-ups twice a week. But if I knew someone wanted to, I would add it on to one day that didn't have pull-ups, for example. And so you're going to have to like maybe prioritize it to where you're like, oh, I if I want to improve my wonder at max, I need to make sure I incorporate a couple more heavy lifts, maybe than our program here, um, or again, or maybe I need to do a, a weightlifting plan that's that's not dialed health. Um, but I think it's an optional fun thing to do, and it is something that I would like to incorporate for those people that that you know enjoy it. Um, yeah. So last thing is. I'm just going to make a comment. Someone just wrote the word calves. (laughs) And here's what I'm going to say about training calves. The reason no one is able to grow their calves is because no one, no one actually trains their calves. I like, I, (laughs) I am convinced. I know that the, the muscle fibers, I think are more of a slow twitch, which makes them harder to grow for a lot of people. Uh, Is that right, Josh? Am am I right? I actually don't know hundred percent, but I will tell you from just bro science observation in the gym You no one's the only guy training calves is the dude with big calves that trains his calves every session i mean would you have any comments about
1: calves real quick yeah this this is actually again another good one um and this is a tough one because uh there is simply the gift of genetics for some people who have freakishly nice calves and it's a tough pill to swallow uh for guys like myself who have just uh chicken legs but i i will say i i I agree with uh your statement too. Like most people don't train their calves. Um, I do think there is a place for training your calves. And again, they're included in the like calf raise variations are included throughout the total body corrective exercise program, uh, because they're great for ankle mobility, Achilles tendon health progressions of both seated and standing calf raises, I think absolutely have their place. And it's one of the best ways to improve your ankle mobility. If that is something that you are lacking as far as growing them, um, as part of me that wants to say like, ah, this is tough, but I, I think well, a lot of people don't train their calves like the way that they do other muscle groups. I think, um, Mm-hmm. If you were to train your calves two to three times a week and use progressive overload with them, like it, just as you would trying to get stronger and build muscle with any other larger compound lift or or muscle group, um, you, you might see results. I, I think because to your point, Derek, I think they are predominantly slow twitch muscle fibers. Um, so they are used to handling. I mean, you think about it, like we walk around all day on our feet, like those muscles have yeah. to be strong and have a large, large capacity for work to be able to just support your body moving all day. Um, I think if you were to hit your calves two or three times a week and do a variety of like seated, like do do like seated calf raises one day and standing calf raises the other day and maybe again, work within a range, like one day do sets of six to 10, two or three sets and the other week or other day do sets of like 12 to 20 If you were to do that religiously for maybe six months, a year, you might start to see some growth. I I definitely have done that and I've seen just like, I couldn't even tell, it's probably like a fraction of an inch of growth in my calves. Um, So I think it's possible. I I, I honestly don't know enough about this to like, beyond that, to be able to say with confidence. Um, But the other thing I can say specifically to cyclists is a high volume of calf training is going you're going to be feeling it like the the DOMS the the, the muscle soreness in the days that follow it's for sure going to have an effect <laughs> yeah. on your bike rides and your ability to just like walk up and down the stairs without collapsing so <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like I could go on about calf training too, but I just think that people simply don't prioritize it and, uh, it's important. And I think it's because of its overall importance of like how you feel. Um, it's easy to put it in the wayside. Um, but if you really want to grow your calves, just prioritize it three days a week, maybe start and in your session with it because when you just throw it at the end of a session, a lot of times people will get one quick calf pump and then call it a day because they're just ready to get out the door or whatever. Um, so you just have to prioritize it. Like literally if that is the goal thing that you want to build, make it the priority of your session. Uh, and I'd be surprised if you didn't have results, but yes, expect some crazy doms the first few sessions. And also, you know, it's going to hurt your bike rides for maybe that w- first week or two, uh, just cause you're so freaking sore. Um, so yeah, that is all we're going to get to today. Unfortunately, it's already been an hour, dude. I could talk to you about this for two, <laughs> three hours, no doubt um i just want to finish it with someone asking when is the next dialed health shred i've thought a lot about this you guys in fact the entire first half of this year i have been stripping things down in the business pulling things out that's not necessary and just getting this foundation and i'm like i've been asking myself what are the things that are most important to me with dialed health what are the uh Events, what are the challenges, like what things should stay and what things should go. And I think the Dialed Health Shred is something that not only needs to stay, but needs to get poured into more and more and more. If you guys don't know what this is, this is a 30-day fat loss challenge that happens in January where we track our food. And the whole goal is to fuel our workouts and lose as much body fat as possible while training and staying in that fine line of a deficit. Again, it's not tracking to find out how little you can eat. It's tracking to make sure you eat as much as you can and still hit the goals you want. So the Dowd Hill Shred is coming back in January. I'm going to start working on it a lot sooner this year and make sure that this year it's bigger than ever. So that's all I got to say about that. I'm very excited about it. And uh, stay tuned for you know announcements in the fall and seeing what kind of partners come on board, what kind of prizes we have. We're going to make it proper, man. I, uh, I kind of half-assed it this year, and I really regret doing that. Uh, but I think it it happened for a lot of reasons. Um, there was just like the resources I used for the the double Everest that kind of took away from it, the timing, uh, getting out of the studio. There's a lot of other stuff going on business-wise. So yeah, I'm really excited to bring that back. Um, but that's pretty much it, you guys. Josh, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. Cool. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. It's time to dive into a Truckee Tahoe Gravel Recap. And I'm really stoked to tell you guys about this race because I feel like it was the race where I used all of my experience over the year and actually put it into play. I was very intentional and I felt like I really tried, even in the preparation up to it. And although I try in other races, there's part of me that holds myself back from doing too much recon or spending too much time on my bike setup. Because in my head, I'm like, no, I have more important things to do because this is like part of the hobby side and do these details really matter. But I've learned that they do matter. (laughs) And what's funny is that the more preparation you do, the more freedom you have to ride in the moment at the race because you're not asking yourself questions about where the aid stations are or the terrain. And it's not always going to be perfect. As you'll learn, I still had some problems during this event. But coming into it, I felt more prepared and more free to just ride hard, which is really what I wanted to do. So what I did to prep for this was, first off, just look at the actual route. I studied it on Strava. I got a really good idea of the ride profile. And from there, I made notes, actually, on my top tube, And I posted it to my Instagram. It's also on my Strava, if you look at my ShakeOut ride. But you'll see that... I had every mile where the terrain changed marked, and it told me whether it was flat or uphill, and I just you drew, like, lines. You know, an up uh, a line that went up to the right was a climb. A line that went down to the right was a descent. If it was squiggly, that meant rolling. If it was squiggly up, it meant rolling climb. If it was squiggly down, it meant rolling descent. And I also put in where every single aid station was because even though – my race plan was not to stop at every aid station. There's actually a lot of them for a course that was only uh, 75 miles, but I wanted to know where they were just in case something came up, which I'm really happy I did because again, I ended up using an aid station that I really didn't expect to use. And so having those written down on my top tube in a very simple format that I could read while I'm riding was great. I mean, the note was probably seven inches long. I used a sharpie to write it so it was clear and then I covered it with clear tape so that as I sweated on it throughout the day or water got on it it wouldn't start getting blurry and what's funny is that it still did kind of bleed even through the tape somehow I think it was just like that sweaty of a day it was kind of hot so studying the course getting a good idea of the train, obviously the whole tire choice thing is always a big debate I ended up running tires that were too small and I'll be honest I took Peter Stetna's recommendation and i've noticed that and he got second first off so it's not like he was wrong but i've noticed that he recommends tires that are typically on the smaller volume side so he recommended some 38s with like a smooth center side knobs and that's what i ran i ran 38 pathfinders by specialized but i wish i had 42s i really did and i saw that it had said on Velo that matt beers had 47 pathfinders on and i haven't seen that as a size that they've made, but maybe they make those now. And he won. He was amazing. I actually got to talk to him before the event and got a really good photo with him. But yeah, that guy absolutely smashed it. He rode the majority of his solo after dropping setna on the first descent, which was like 25 minutes and definitely worthy of a mountain bike. But we'll get into that in a second. My actual race plan was to, for one, not use a pack. And I wanted to stay with the first front group until the first climb, which was like 20 miles in. And so I I knew I had to be intentional about staying at the front. You know, I told you guys at Unbound, I wasn't as aggressive as I should have been. And I started getting kind of pushed to the back through that washing machine effect. So, you know, we rolled out with 700 plus people and I was in the front to start, not completely in the front, but you know, like top 20 riders. And I made sure as I started getting shifted back that I immediately pushed back to the front. And then once we got to the actual gravel itself, it was a super hectic first mile on gravel. It was rough. It went from pavement to the gravel and it, there was all these like holes and uh, breaking bumps and rocks and baby heads. And it was, it was super hectic, honestly. And once we got through that, I realized, okay, I'm going to just literally ride the front. And I, I went and rode the front until we got to a little bit more of a hectic Uh, section where I was just a little bit more focused on line choice. My pace slowed down a little bit, but I was staying with the front group. Now, this worked until I dropped my chain. And this is where I learned a lot about equipment on this race. I've been running the Explore group set on my Specialized Crux, which it comes stock on the bike. Obviously, it was designed for gravel, but I think as a lot of people have learned, you're taking these gravel bikes on super aggressive terrain, especially at events in California, like Northern California, to be specific. A lot of the trails are worthy of a mountain bike, and it's just steep ups, steeps downs, a lot of rock. It's just like rough terrain. And the Explore derailleur apparently doesn't have the same clutch, like as a tight of a clutch as the mountain bike derailleur has which is why a lot of people are running the mullet setup, which is not only for more, more range, you know, a bigger mountain bike rear cassette that goes up to like 52 tooth on the back and all the way down to like a 11 or 10 or whatever it is. But the clutch itself on the derailleur keeps the chain more taut and it is less likely to actually drop a chain if you're running a one by. And so that is something I really want to move to i would love to try the new transmission uh we'll see if we can get something like that worked out but i have noticed some drop chains recently and this race totally screwed me because i stayed with the front group uh it was like it ended up thinning out to a group of maybe 15 riders or so in the front and there were some freaking hitters here by the way matt beers pete stetna we had uh tobin was here we had uh now i'm like of course, forgetting everyone. Levi Leipheimer, my uh, local buddy Harrison Beal, we had uh, uh, Ian. Um, gosh, dude, I'm, I'm actually slipping on everybody now, but trust me, it was very stacked, much more than I expected for this event. And so it was just a really awesome group of 15 riders. And then I dropped my chain like a mile before the actual climb, which was the goal to stay with them with, because that climb was like 2,000 feet, cracked over 8K. Uh, for total elevation. And so I was like, you know what, I know I'm going to get dropped on this climb by the top dudes, but I could stay with them there at least. But I dropped the chain, I get it back on. And I think in the process of getting the chain back on, I bent my derailleur hanger a little bit, which you'll find out later. (laughs) But basically, it was it was frustrating. But I just tried to collect myself, I only lost 20, uh, probably 30 seconds. And they slowly drifted out of my view. But I ended up going up this entire climb solo. Now, I told you in the beginning, I only brought bottles and I brought two tall bottles because the, there was an aid station. It was the second aid station at mile 29, but it was at the very top of this climb and it, the climb just peaked. You went straight up, you crested over this ridge and you went straight down for like 25 minutes. Now I was like, okay, we're 29 miles in, I have two tall bottles and this would be a perfect time to roll up. Even though I'll be pretty redlined, fill up the bottles. And then just drop back in. And one thing that's cool about riding toward the front is that there's less traffic at aid stations. So this ended up working out really well. You know, I had mix in my bottles. I had basically started the day with a 90-gram carb mix in my first bottle and also 1,000 milligrams of sodium. Uh, So it was a total of 1,200 milligrams of sodium from the mix, actually. And then I had two Never Second gels. I also had a Sturka Rice Bar, which is 50 grams of carbs. And then I had another pack of mix, which was 90 grams of carbs and 200 milligrams of sodium in my pocket. So I drained the mix within that first 30 miles and I had a gel. So 120 grams of carbs before I got to mile 30 at the top of this climb. When I got up there, I basically rolled up to (laughs) the people working the aid station and they were totally like in this chill mode. I'm sure I'm one of the only front guys who actually stopped at the aid but i rolled up on them and they're just like hey how's it going and i'm like please fill this up with water and i like toss them a bottle i take my other bottle i took the cap off i poured my mix in and as they handed me back the uh, filled water i handed them the mix bottle and asked them to fill it up I took a big swig of my water bottle put it on my bike they handed me back my mix bottle i shook it put it on literally said thank you and rolled and i kid you not it was maybe 45 seconds. It was awesome. It made me so happy to not have a pack because of how smooth that went. Uh, but it also made me realize how much I drink because later in the race, I actually ended up wanting more water than I had available, uh, which we'll get to in a second. So anyways, first off so far on the ride, it went well. I was like very intentional about being in the front and I, I climbed hard. I executed my like pit stop with my nutrition And then I started the descent, which this is like my bread and butter. This is my favorite part of these technical gravel races is gaining time on the descent. And this is where the enduro racing comes into fruition. This comes or, or comes into play. This is where all the time doing the cornering drills and riding rock gardens and all this stuff I did growing up just comes in because not only do I typically put time on people on the descent, but I also save a little bit of energy for sure. I'm just a little bit more relaxed. And these things are technical. I'm telling you, (laughs) even the guys who rode mountain bikes were like, "Whoa, I wouldn't want to do that on a gravel bike, or I can't imagine how sketchy that would be, especially when you're in the drops and you're trying to keep control over everything. But you're literally catching air over rocks. There were huge water bars, just flat-out rough sections that were kind of chattery. And then toward the end, it turned into this like high-speed, fast, rolling gravel. I mean, it was probably, I should check my average speed, but we were probably doing an average of like, 20 to, th- 20 to 30 miles an hour for like five minutes over this rolling gravel descent. It was so sick. And I ended up catching a group in front of me that had like four guys I kept riding with for kind of on and off throughout the day. But at that time, I realized that my saddlebag had completely come loose. So I tried this new saddlebag that actually the, the clip went through your seat post on either side and then went around the actual saddlebag and then clipped. But what happened was the saddlebag slowly lowered as I went down all that crazy chatter on the descent and it slipped through the loop and it was just dangling off of one seat rail and it wasn't like around it at all. So I'm literally riding down this descent and I'm feeling something hitting the back of both of my thighs and I could kind of feel the sway of the uh, like weights on my seat kind of pulling me back and forth. And literally, I realized the saddlebag was going, and I was like, no freaking way. I was like, <laughs> I had realized and understood what happened. Uh, it was my first time riding with it, which again, this was this was kind of a dumb move. You know, don't use new equipment on race day if possible. Uh, the only reason I had swapped it out was because my previous saddlebag was kind of subpar anyways, but I wore a hole in it at Unbound, like literally a hole. <laughs> so... I just like got a new one for the race. Uh, I did a shakeout ride. um, Oh No, the day before my shakeout ride was on the turbo. So I I really didn't even test it. And so anyways, I just rode like that. And I was like, all right, when I get a chance, I'm going to somehow take this thing off, make room in my pockets and put it in my pocket. And it was cool because when we got back on a road section right before the next climb, uh, I, the, the group slowed down a ton. Like it was just a collective thing. I think everybody wanted to grab some food, some water kind of reset. So it was perfect. I took my saddlebag off by just kind of reaching around my butt. When I was riding, I made room in my center pocket on my Jersey and just stuffed that thing in there. And honestly, it was good to go. Um, so I was, I was happy about how I handled that. Cause I didn't let it like freak me out. I was just kind of annoyed because it's just one of those things where it's like, Oh, of course I didn't test this one thing. And This is what happens so so we're with the group we're climbing we're on a kind of a flat very steady graded climb i mean it couldn't have been more than like four to six percent for a few miles and then it kicked up and as it kicked up and got steep i'm now getting to the point where i feel like the group i'm with is on my limit of like whether or not i can keep up with them but it was perfect like when you're in groups like that on a gravel race that's perfect because you're like okay i know these guys are saving me time because we're working together But it's just on the limit for me. And like, that's like almost the sweet spot you want to be in. Like, if you know you're with a group like that at any point, especially on a road or a flat road or whatever, at like some of these BWR events, you know you're saving a ton of time, which is great. But I get to the steep uh, ascent. I mean, and we start pitching into the teens on dirt. So you don't want to stand, you're seated. I go into my top gear, which is a 44, and dude, my freaking chain dumps over the top of my cassette into my wheel. And of course i'm pedaling hard so it kind of jams in there and then i'm like crap i get it back on that chain ring but i didn't shift again so when i got back on my bike and of course the, the the group i'm with is now riding away from me i do it again because i hadn't shifted down to get out of that gear which dumped over in the first place which probably meant i bent my derailleur hanger or something on the first chain drop when it went off the front so that was another thing too i'm like if you dump. If something gets bent and you dump a chain over the top of the cassette, you need to shift down to the next gear before you put it back on so that it doesn't just pop off again when you start pedaling. So again, another little lesson learned. And I, I split from the group. I had probably lost close to a minute in that fiasco, which was frustrating. But as I climbed to the top and had crested the climb, I caught one dude and then started descending. And this descent was so chattery and rough. I was honestly stoked I didn't flat. But of course it was like written in stone. I was just going to drop my chain again. I did. I dropped my chain off the right side, put it back on, and then lower down on the same descent, I dropped my chain on the, on the inside. I didn't have a chain guide. I didn't have a front derailleur to shift it back on like some people do with the two by. I just was at the point where I was like, something's wrong. Like I need to fix this. And I, I, like I said, I think the solution is going to a mullet setup, riding a mountain bike derailleur. And I'm probably going to put a chain guide on as well because I don't see myself going to two by at this point. So that's what I'm hoping to do before the next race, before it really matters. <laughs> and I really don't want to drop a chain again. um And it will be cool to also have a bigger range. Like if I had a, let's say, a, I don't know if it's a 10 or 11 at the bottom of these uh, Eagle cassettes, but let's just say it's 1152 range. I mean, Keegan and these guys are running like 50 tooth chain rings, but I could definitely run a 46 or maybe a 48. uh I don't want to get up to the one to one ratio, but it will be nice to have all that range because. Even with my Explore group set, which is uh, down to a 1044, I get spun out over like 35 miles an hour, which we experience in the groups on the you know gradual descents. And so I don't want to be spun out. And uh, yeah, that's kind of the transition I will hopefully uh, make before the next race. And it was good that it happened because it made me ask why, and it made me look into some of these other guys' setups a little bit closer. And really after that, I got to... The point where there was one more aid, there are two more aid stations, and I knew I was like, okay, I can hit the aid station at mile. I think it was fifty-five or fifty-four because the finish of the race was actually a mile sixty-four, and there was like this ten-mile neutral roll back to the start uh, expo area, and I thought I was like, okay, cool. I'm. I didn't plan on stopping at this aid station. But I'm actually a lot more thirsty than I expected. I just I I think I drink a ton of water when I'm racing. And so I'm going to stop. I'm going to fill up both bottles so I don't have to worry about water. I'm going to top off as much as I need and just finish the race from there. We're going to make it quick. I didn't plan on it. But again, this is a better idea than going thirsty. And so by the time I rolled into the aid station, I'd made that decision. But all these guys were standing on the side doing bottle hand-ups. And I was like, is that water? And he said, yeah. And I was like, perfect. So I just literally forgot all about the fact i wanted to fill up two bottles i dumped one bottle and then i just grab like i just threw one bottle and then i grabbed the topped off water bottle and rolled through the aid station like oh i just saved so much time But here's the problem <laughs> it was a small bottle for one and i was running large bottles but i was already ready to drink a small bottle like i was thirsty enough at that point where i started drinking that bottle i drank half of it and i was like oh crap like this is the all the water i have for the rest of this 10 miles i was like this is this is not enough. And that was the last aid station. And so I'm riding now and I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to really milk this thing. And I have one more. No, I'd already taken my other gel at that point. So I had a little bit of solid food left. I already was cracking into that bar, which by the way, I brought that bar out of safety. I didn't think I'd need it, but I ended up eating half of it at this point. And now I'm like kind of nursing this bottle. And I'm like, oh, this sucks. Like I'm going to finish so cracked if I go hard or something's going to happen. Like I cramp because I just am not fueled. Well, I'm rolling up this climb before this long stretch on this uh, across this reservoir dam, which is beautiful, by the way, Boca Reservoir, just north of Truckee, like unbelievable. Some of the photos from the race are so pretty. And so I get to this climb and I come up on this racer because we're now uh, basically lapping, not lapping, but we're converging with the riders who did the shorter distances. And there was like a 30 mile, I think, and like a fit 40 and then the longer one or something. And so I'm converging with this guy. He's on a mountain bike and this dude is so kitted out. I hope, I don't know if this guy's listening, but it would be so awesome. If you have a friend that complained about someone who took a bottle from him, (laughs) send this, send this podcast to him because I roll up on this guy He's got two tall bottles that are, I can see that they're full. All the bottles are clear. He has two full bottles on his bike. He has a, uh, like a hydration fanny pack with a tube coming out of it. And then he has two bottles on each side of that fanny pack. I'm like, this guy's literally a camel on wheels. And I mean, maybe it's just an angel. This could have been purely from God blessing me here and being like, I just put this guy here for you. Like, that's it. I dropped them in and I'm pulling them right back out after you're gone. <laughs> no, I just, I saw them and I was like, this is my opportunity. And this is where you guys, it's like the, I mean, now we're getting real biblical. Ask and you shall receive. <laughs> Don't be afraid to ask people sometimes. Like, it's uncomfortable. You feel like you're a nuisance. You, you know, it's, I get why it's uncomfortable. You know, it's, it, it's hard to ask for things sometimes. But I saw this dude and I was like, I need water. And I was like, hey, do you have spare water? And I had to slow down, honestly, a lot to get to talk to him and slow down enough to, to, you know, grab a bottle from him. But he said, he said, yes. And I was like, can I take the bottle? He's like, I was like, do you need it back? And it was a brand new, like specialized bottle. And he was on all specialized gear. And I'm like, this guy wants this bottle back for sure. So he said, he's like, you just dump it on the side of the road. And I was like, wow, what an absolute legend. So he gave me a full bottle. And I, I drank about half of it on that rolling climb, dumped it at the top. And from there, I felt confident that I had enough water to get back. And at that point, the dude I had passed at the top of the second big climb caught up to me. Uh, my new friend Dylan rides for Mike's Bikes. A dude gave me the most legendary pole across the reservoir. It was just this, like, long, flat section. And then once I pulled through, my pole was kind of weak, so sorry about that, Dylan. Hopefully, I made up for it on the gravel afterwards. <laughs> but... But it was just like the perfect uh, like, chain of events that made me feel super good for the last 10 miles. And then I rolled through with a couple buddies, and we had kind of this random sprint to the finish, which I ended up edging him out on by pure luck uh, because none of us knew where the finish line was, and it popped up out of a corner, and I just happened to be in the front. But it was really cool. You know, I ended up finishing 11th overall, and, you know, there's – i don't know how many riders were on the long course but 700 total at the event a a lot of really fast riders um i think i was like uh 10 or 15 minutes off of matt beers maybe 20 i have to go look like you know i'm honestly kind of guilty at really looking at and analyzing all this stuff uh it's probably just because of like time and other things i'm doing in my life but i've never been one to be like okay he was i'm gonna go compare this sector on strava and Maybe maybe I'll get there. Um, I'm starting to care more about the details, but it was really cool to just feel like I had a solid race. I I performed well. I was intentional. I prepped for it. And I and I really executed it. Um, and I dealt with the problems that arise. It wasn't perfect. Um, it could have been a lot worse. But again, I think uh, I think I was really happy with the with the whole day. So that was my experience at Truckee Tra- uh, Tahoe Gravel. And I guess uh, the last thing I wanted to add before I wrap this up. Is there's a couple of other things I'm I'm learning. So Tusher and the Crusher happened this last weekend. So it was a week after Truckee Gravel, and the ride pr- the ride distance was very similar. Theirs was 69 miles, but they had 10,000 feet of climbing with a mountaintop finish, opposed to uh, 6,800 feet of climbing. So you know another third of that. So way more intense course. It was totally a, it was at a higher altitude. The race we just did was um, above 5,000 feet the entire time and went up over 8,000 feet. Uh, Which, by the way, I I felt really good um, coming from sea level. So that was cool. But I noticed that some guys at that race ran three bottles on their bikes. And Keegan, who won it and set a course record, he ran two big bottles and a soft flask in his uh, back pocket. And so I asked him about that and like, what he put in it? And he had some extra calories in it. He had some caffeine in it and some sodium, but he kind of used it toward the end of the race, he told me. And my first thing was like, dude, isn't it hard to get that soft flask back in your pocket because it's, you know, it's all floppy and everything. And he said he would blow back into the bottle a little bit so that there was a little more shape to help get it in the pocket. And as you can imagine in our DMs, like this led to a lot of that's what she said jokes (laughs) for sure. A lot of Michael Scott gifs sent back and forth and uh, you know, that was the reality. It's like you... (laughs) I don't even know how to say it here. You got to firm it up before you put it back in the pocket. (laughs) I'm just, I'm not even going to go down this, but you can, you can imagine what I'm trying to say. I'm, I'm going to get a soft flask and I'm going to try this out because I think not having a pack, especially when there's heat is really nice because even for this race, if you think about it, I didn't have to carry this extra liter or two of water up the climb. And I think that That really helped me out, uh, but again i I also love running packs at races and not feeling like I have to conserve water, so i'm going to keep going back and forth i'm going to try the soft flask idea um, but the the last thing I want to say is that i've learned how to not have to pee at the beginning of these races. This was something i that was a huge problem when I did levi 's grand fondo. We rolled out and i'm just and i've always kind of had this as a As an issue where I'm hydrating so much before the race, like directly before it that we get an hour in and I have to pee so bad and you have to obviously it makes you have to stop and if you're in a group and like where do you do all of it um I'm not at the point where you're doing the pro pee on the side of the peloton and catching right back up like i'm just not that that experienced yet <laughs> also, when do you practice that <laughs> besides racing like i don't know that's one of those things. I don't know if I see myself doing it, but what I have realized is that I'm very hydrated twenty four seven. I drink a ton, and when I uh, like like I don't need to fuel or hydrate that much more the morning of. Like I can drink water a couple hours before, have coffee, and really like an hour out, I almost stop drinking completely. Maybe an hour and a half, I almost like start shutting it down, and that's what I did this race. And I ended up peeing two more times before the, the the race. And I had barely had any more liquids at that point. And I was just sipping on my carb-sodium mix. And it was awesome because I got into this race and I literally, I didn't pee the whole time. <laughs> and I know that sounds weird, but I peed directly after the race. It was only four hours. But even if I would have had to, it would have been prolonged to a few hours in the event to where if I got to a point where I was at an aid station or I could just pull over on the side, I'm more separated from groups. Like I could have picked more of my time to do that in the race, which is somewhat inevitable, um, opposed to feeling like I'm an hour in and now I'm screwing up my whole race strategy and dropping the group because I have to pee so bad. Because dude, if you have to pee on all these bumps, like it's it's super uncomfortable, and you're gonna like what I notice. What happens is if you have to hold something in, whether it's pee, whether it's poop, whether it's a fart, (laughs) like whatever. You're probably gonna have less core engagement because you're not trying to tighten your core. Like, why would you squeeze your stomach when your bladder's full? And that leads to back pain. Any time I ride and I have to poop, I get back pain, <laughs> and it's because you're try- You're not, you know, like keeping good core tension. You have gas. You're bloated. Like, there's something up like that, um, and it's very legit. <laughs> this is. I mean, I guess it's like anecdotal, bro, science. But if you think about it, like. it it really makes a lot of sense. I think it's the clearest explanation out there. So riding when you have to pee kind of sucks for that reason. And you can also like, you know, get like some, you know, urinary, like UTI or something like that, uh, which I've heard of from uh, even men in the pro peloton, just from holding your pee in. You don't really want to just pee your bladder if you can help because not only is it kind of gross, but then you have a wet chamois and that could lead to rash, like all other sorts of stuff. So I think taking care of yourself is important, even if you are competitive. You know, even at Flannel Grinder earlier this year, there was one point where I had this rock in my shoe that was so uncomfortable. Like I did not want to push down on the pedals, and I rode with it for a few miles before I was like, "Dude, I kind of have to pee. I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna pee. I'm gonna get this rock out of my shoe, and I'm gonna keep going." And it was the best decision ever. Even though it was 90 seconds of a stop, it still made the you know the rest of the race that much better because I could not get this like rock. That was probably a dime size and like a sphere kind of jagged sphere size of a dime that was in my arch the entire time like that stuff just kind of happens so you know you have to grit it out but I think especially when you're not racing for your career like these are the even if you're trying to do your best these are the luxuries that you can take (laughs) and you don't have to stress about it as much which is pretty cool um and so that's it yeah thank you for listening to this recap i didn't expect it to go so long but that's really everything that i put into play for this gravel event super happy with the performance and and i'm also just enjoying it like it's it's just been fun it's been fun to get out with the people at these races have these hard efforts a shared experience and you know like learn from it build the community like it's just this total double whammy where not only does this help my business and everything. But this has become something that I just personally enjoy and it's fun and it's challenging. It's like, it checks so many boxes. So I'm very grateful for for Gravel. I'm hoping to do more events in the future, even though I've already done way more than I expected. Uh, but right now I don't have any more planned for a couple of months actually. Um, and what I do have planned is a lot of content and a lot of new things that I really believe are gonna take my content to the next level for Dialed Health and for everyone. And yeah, I guess that's all I'll say about that. We're already working on it. And so that's going to be really my focus. And that's where I'm going to put my extra time and, and resources into over the next couple of months, uh, for the sake of all things dialed health. And then I'll come back toward October with a lot more racing. So, uh, that's it. I hope you guys love this episode and stay tuned for a big episode coming next week. This is a huge interview. I'm super excited. I actually booked it like three months ago and. Uh, You guys are going to be able to hear it next week. So uh, stay tuned for that. And until next time, start moving forward.